Hello and welcome to another mini-sode. Today we are once again talking about the federal mandate for healthcare workers to be vaccinated against COVID-19. The last time we talked about this topic, it was an anticipated mandate or rule from CMS, but now it is here. So we're going to get into all that right now. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hutcher. And this is Rural Health Rising. So, JJ, um, we're recording this on Tuesday, so two days before you as a listener are listening to this. And last week on Thursday, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, did put out their interim final rule uh, regarding vaccination for healthcare workers. This covers most all, um, pretty much all hospitals Mm -hmm. who participate in Medicare and Medicaid and other healthcare providers like outpatient physical therapy and speech therapy, um, things like that. The one One area that it's not covering as we expected it to um, is physicians' offices. That was kind of a surprise to us. We expected physicians' offices to be um, covered under this as well, but they're not. Unless they're rural health clinics. Right. If they're an RHC, then they do qualify. an important distinction. Yes, yes. Um, So, JJ, why don't you just give us an overview of, you know, what what does the mandate entail? Um, What does it not entail? And then maybe we'll get into a little bit about what are we doing? You know, thanks, Rachel. So this is, we we have spoken many times on this program about our objection to a federal mandate. Now, for many reasons, and I don't want to, I don't want to confuse the issues. Number one, we believe vaccines work. Yes. Right? I mean, no one is contesting that. We we know, uh, we've, we've met with all the epidemiologists, we know what happens. When you get vaccinated, it reduces your risk uh, of contracting or spreading COVID-19. And now, we've tracked that in our own numbers yes. since September 22nd. We're seeing, you know, typically Firsthand. 85% of our yeah. hospitalizations are unvaccinated. The ones that are vaccinated, they're more than six months out. So they're really getting into booster territory. Um, and also they're leaving really quickly. They're not in the ICU. They're not it's on true. a ventilator and they're not the ones who are dying. It's true. Well, the 12 deaths that we are, you know, broaching right now in the last, let's say, seven weeks, all unvaccinated. Right. So the science is there. And we know that. We we fundamentally uh, agree with all of the research that has been done uh, to bring us to where we are today in the sense of knowing that this does stop COVID or at least prevent the spread of it. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. So we know that. Now, that has nothing to do with the federal mandate because the federal mandate is saying regardless of any factors in your organization – Regardless of your community's transmission rate, regardless of any of those factors, the federal government has issued through two bodies, CMS and OSHA. Now, that's confusing for some people, right? Right. Because we had some recent lawsuits that really said we're going to put a stay on OSHA's side of it. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's good for them. But healthcare is still regulated by CMS. Right. All right. Right. So, so we're mandated, you know, obviously through conditions of participation to agree to all of these standards within CMS. Right. So CMS comes out and or around the same time as OSHA does, the president tasked both bodies to create the rules. And the rules came out. And OSHA's rules are for employers, over 100 employees. Mm-hmm. They must get vaccinated or they must test. Okay. And so that's 100 or more. Now, if you're under 100, well, you're exempt from that. Right. Um, And so at the same time, then 
Um, and, and they allowed for religious uh, exemptions as well as medical. Right, which the religious that's required under the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and the medical ones are uh, required under ADA, I believe. Absolutely. And I know you're going to read to us what the religious exemption is so that way our, our listeners can understand, well, is that just targeting one particular faith? Is it? We're, we're going to hear about that. But Rachel, when you look at it, so that's, that is OSHA. They regulate the workspace, okay? Not just not just healthcare, but they regulate all of the work uh, spaces. Then you have CMS; they regulate healthcare. So, what did CMS say? CMS said, "Well, what we're going to do is we're going to be more strict." So the law says whatever is stricter, and the fact that we have to participate with CMS, we have to follow that rule. Right. What and is in their fact, rule? OSHA said they won't be applying their rule to those who are covered under CMS. Correct. So for all intents and purposes, goes away. we don't really even have to no. know the OSHA rule, no. read the OSHA rule, understand no. the OSHA rule. We already have an emergency temporary standard from OSHA for healthcare yes. that was issued back in June. Yeah, COVID-19. Yep, and, we're still And our requirements that. for screening patients and those things. So not that we're saying brush you know, it aside, but truly OSHA in this this realm is is not applicable to the vaccine mandate. For so healthcare. C- for healthcare. So CMS says, all right, not only is it a mandate, um, but you have to be vaccinated and you cannot test. Right. Wait, what? So that's what one says, as one has been looking at this for the last week. Um, so you mean to tell me that we are not treated as every other employer in America? And because our healthcare heroes went from heroes, you know, living in tents and in trailers when the pandemic started, and now all of a sudden we've said to them, well, really, regardless of what your views are or your thoughts, or we're going to treat you even more strict than we treat the normal workforce. To me, Rachel, that is the standard that really grinds me the most. Right. Because when you look at it, all we're advocating for is to be treated like all other employers. Now, for many reasons. Number one, recruitment and retention. Yes. Right? It's huge for us. Mm-hmm. And you know as well as I do for recruitment. When we start looking at recruiting people to work at the hospital and then we put on there must be vaccinated, no opportunity for testing once a week like other employers can, what I have now a disadvantage. Right. So, so that's very concerning to me. Uh, and and retaining employees here who have a fundamental belief that they just don't want to get vaccinated. And now they can go and work for my competitor in an office setting that's right. not a rural health clinic, making comparable, you know, it depends yeah, on what role they play. Just at a private play, physician's at office. At a private physician's office. So my, my competition right now in the marketplace intensified significantly. Mm-hmm. It's not just the big hospital box system down the road. It is now, even in my own community and backyards, physicians' offices who are friendly to us, right. who, who are in relationships with us for other projects, now really are the competitor mm-hmm. because they don't have to adhere to this. So someone who wants to stay in healthcare, which generally speaking, you get into healthcare because you want to stay in it to take right. care of people. Right. Now they have an option. And their option is they can walk out of the hospital and down the street and into the office of a primary care physician, specialty clinic, whatever it is, and have a job. Now, let's say that they decide, you know, I'm done with healthcare. You know, this is just too many regulations and too too strict. What else do we face the challenge of? Well, they can go to your local big box stores. Mm-hmm. They can go to those big outlet centers and they can begin to work for those places. You know, maybe the pay is going to be comparable, but what they're most interested in is I'm not going to be told I have to 
be vaccinated. Right. And that's the biggest issue at play right now. We're saying as a hospital, number one, first and foremost, we believe in vaccines. They are important to stopping this pandemic. We believe that. Mm-hmm. It slows the spread down and it, and it stops the, the transmission uh, and it keeps people out of hospitals. We know it does. But number two, what I'm advocating for outside of the vaccines is treat us like every other employer. Give me the same opportunity to be treated like Walmart, Meyer, and the big chain stores uh, with over 100 people. And we, too, then are going to be able to compete in the marketplace because if I remove all of those barriers, you know, then it's equal playing field. Right now, it's not going to be an equal playing field, even in my own right. industry of healthcare, right. And that is very concerning. Right. And, you know, what what I think is also important about this is we I have been at least a little surprised because I was not really educated on the EEOC's um, definition of religion in terms of religious discrimination or accommodation for religious beliefs and things like that. And that is the, um, you know, standard that is going to govern how do we comply with this mandate, which does require us to um, provide a process for employees to submit um, for a religious exemption to getting vaccinated. And so, um, you know, the good thing is, Religious exemptions are on the table because that's very important. There have been hospital systems um, in other parts of the country that have not allowed for religious exemptions. Well, they're violating um, the federal law. Yes, and they're they're losing their cases in court now on that as well. Sure. Um, so, you know, we were kind of concerned at the beginning that, okay, some hospitals and states have said no religious exemptions. Is that what CMS is going to say? CMS has not said no. that. Um, but now we have to kind of go through and, and we consult with our legal teams, of course, with these kinds of issues um, and figure out, so what is that really? mean because that morning it first came out, I remember I was at the dentist's office texting you like, hey, the rule just came out and, you know, I'm laying there in the chair like, hang on, I'm texting, you know. Um, And I said to you, I said, the religious exemptions are going to be permitted, but how are employers supposed to decide what is and is not a sincerely held religious belief? This is going to have to get played out in the courts. And, um, you know, since that time, obviously, that was immediately after it came out, um, I've been reading and we've been looking at different things. And um, one of the things that I have found very useful is the compliance manual section on religious discrimination from the EEOC on their website. and. It talks about and defines religion, and it's not what you would expect, right? I'm thinking, okay, it has to be an organized religion of some form. It has to have, you know, some sort of tenets or theology that that people have to stick to. Really. But it really, it's broader than it that, is much which broader. the more I think about it, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But in my head, I was just assuming there was going to be some some rigid guidelines to this, um, you know, just not knowing. That was just what, what I was thinking was going to happen. And you know, Rachel, that I've had colleagues across the United States that have set their their own rigid guidelines up because they don't think that this should be enforced uh, to this level that we would allow the broadness of it enforced. So the reality of it is um, it is protected federally. That, you know, we're not going to sit here and interview people about, tell us who the 12 apostles were. Right. You know, we can't because religion and beliefs and ideas all come in different sizes and shapes, as we all know. Right. And to create a tribunal, a, a panel, you know, a group of people to evaluate that, that would be destructive. Right. Because it would then get into a deep-seated conversations about faith and I think, you know, if you could read to us maybe the definition so we can give our listeners a better idea of what we're talking about. 
So according to the EEOC, Title VII, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, defines religion to include, quote, all aspects of religious observance and practice as well as belief, not just practices that are mandated or prohibited by a tenet of the individual's faith. Also, this is important, religion includes not only traditional organized religions. I was Mm -hmm. thinking it had to be some sort of organized thing, um, such as Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Sikhism, and Buddhism, but also religious beliefs that are new, uncommon, not part of a formal church or sect, only subscribed to by a small number of people, or that seem, and this is the key, illogical or unreasonable to others. So when you talk about having, you know, a tribunal— Um, trying to go through and say, well, yeah, you have a sincerely held belief and you don't and this is okay and this is not. None of that can be based on the belief itself. Right. The question is not what is the belief. The question is, do you have a sincerely held belief that stands in conflict with you getting vaccinated Mm -hmm. for COVID-19? And maybe sometimes it's for all vaccinations. I guess that would depend. Most of the times it is. Right, right. Um, And then this is also important too. It says, further, a person's religious beliefs need not be confined in either source or content to traditional or parochial concepts of religion. So a belief is religious for Title VII purposes if it is religious in the person's own scheme of things. For example, it is a sincere and meaningful belief that occupies a place in the life of its possessor parallel to that filled by God. Yes. Um, So this is very different than what I expected. And I think for, um, you know, for employees— I feel like it could be very easy to assume maybe what I assumed Mm -hmm. and if someone who does not want to is not vaccinated, doesn't want to get vaccinated and Mm -hmm. is assuming what I assumed, well, it has to be organized or has to be some specific tenant or whatever. And is thinking, well, I'm not eligible for a vaccination because this is my religious belief or my Mm -hmm. sincerely held belief, but I don't have a church yeah, that's a lot an of people, organized group yes. that, this, that that is part of me having this belief system. Yeah, and a lot of people approach me with that exact same thing. Is mm-hmm. JJ, we don't belong to a church, we don't have a membership with a church, but we are X, you know, right. and we firmly believe that this is not and this is why and and spent a very long time in in both written form and verbal form uh, communicating with me about what their, you know, desires are uh, to avoid the vaccine. Now I Again, my position, vaccines work, but if you have a deeply held belief in an idea that prevents you from this, then I have to adhere and honor that. Right. I have to. Right. And and so when I first heard this was, was coming out, we had heard early on that it was going to be um, probably would be no exemption for religions. What or I had heard, very like very scrutinized or yeah, highly. So we had heard everything from pastoral sign offs. Right. Uh, where the pastor or your clergy had to sign off on the form attesting that you were in good faith of that church. And right. all of those went quickly bye bye. Mm-hmm. And they looked toward what was already on the books, which, you know, the Civil Rights Act says for all of those reasons, I can say I have a deeply held belief or an idea. And uh, it's something that I hold to, and therefore that is protected under the religious clause. Right. It doesn't have to say the first church of whatever. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. It is an idea. It's a belief. And so, you know, as we move forward with this, I think this is important because there are deeply held beliefs and ideas. Now, one thing worth noting, Rachel, is that this does not allow any person to say that for political reasons— 
yes. that I can, you know, avoid this. Or Social, for, political, yeah. or economic philosophies, right. as well as mere personal preferences, yeah. are not religious beliefs protected by Title VII. Absolutely. That's another quote and from the not. EEOC. And it's not. And so when we look at this process, w- this is nothing new to us. This is what I want our listeners to understand. Uh, we have been asking for declination uh, signatures for a decade that I've been here uh, in the flu. Right. vaccines. Right. And so we've received those. And we go through a flu declination clinic where they mm-hmm. decline to receive the vaccine for deeply held beliefs right. and or religious. Uh, and so this is nothing new to healthcare. Right. We have been doing this since the inception of ordering certain mandates for vaccines. And so this, to me, is strikingly the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You have the same opportunity that you do with the flu vaccine as you've had for a decade to do the same with the COVID vaccine. Now, we're not creating a pathway for people just to be obstinate, but there are certainly people who have deep held beliefs as to why they do not want to get vaccinated. Uh, and so one of the things that we're going to do, as we do with the flu, is you'll fill out the form. Mm-hmm. In the form, you'll attest to it. No pastor signs it. Right. You don't have to have a, a, a photocopy of your baptism. None you just of have those to things. demonstrate that you have a sincerely yes. held belief that, again, would um, stand in conflict right. with getting vaccinated. And we honor it. Right. You know, right. we're not going to spend time going over everybody's tenets of their faith. And or it's grilling people. It's inappropriate. You know, right. It's inappropriate. Now, if well, we, get we the can't f- be the ones to determine that. Right. Absolutely I mean, not. The, the Nor courts, should we. The courts, um, you know, have given some definition to it. But, you know, we employers can't be expected to have to do an investigation. Um, and, and some of the language is pretty pretty clear in that unless the employer has an objective reason to believe that that sincerely held belief is not what the employee is representing it to be, um, then, you know, they take that at face value. Right. right. But if they have an objective reason um, to believe that, okay, maybe this is not quite accurate what the employee is representing, um, then they are allowed and permitted under the law to inquire further. Um, But I doubt that's going to be very many scenarios. Um, Very few. It may be, but but that's really in in terms of uh, trying to, I guess, validate or verify mm-hmm. um, the accommodation requests, yeah. that's pretty much what the law allows for. Um, and let's not forget, Rachel, that of all the rural hospitals in America, the majority of those rural hospitals receive the majority of their funding yes. from the government, CMS, from Medicaid and Medicare. Right. And all of that funding runs the day-to-day operations of the hospital. In our case, it's 70% of our reimbursement. Right. right. And so we can't say no to this CMS requirement. Right. What we have to do is work within the parameters under two uh, allowable, two allowable uh, exemptions, which is medical, mm-hmm. and that is a provider has to attest to it, right. and then religious, and religious right. we've already defined. Now, one of the things that I think as we look at and transition into our discussion today uh, is the impact on healthcare for such involvement of the federal government for things like this. Because, Rachel, I've had people already tell me, I'm not applying for any religious exemption. We're done. We're done. Not getting it. Just refuse to. And so for those people— And and if they don't have a deeply held belief that is, you know, religious in nature, then they shouldn't. Right. Right. And so so they're telling me that. Now, what's going to happen is that does represent a decent number. Right. Right. And we've had people come to us and say— I'm not going to, you're not going to question my integrity. You know, I'm not a, a, a faith believing person. You know that I don't have any deep beliefs and I'm not going to sign that form. So you're going to have to terminate me. Right. And so 
healthcare is going to have a different face very soon. And mm-hmm. that scares me. Mm-hmm. It scares me, Rachel, for the reasons I spoke about earlier. We've gone from heroes to almost just saying to them, you know what, just sit down, shut up, and listen to what we're telling you to do. And in the face of someone who has been a hero and who has fought to keep your loved ones alive and currently my loved ones alive, that's a hard pill to swallow. Mm-hmm. And so people, we call it the great resignation, right? Right. It's happening all around us. And mm-hmm. these folks who are at the age where they can retire or get out of healthcare, they're doing it because they're tired of the bureaucracy. Right. At the end of the day, when our governor shut down uh, the elective surgeries, we fought against it, not because we're opposed to the governor in general or because of partisan politics. Or not because we uh, wanted to be footloose and fancy free no. with COVID infection control no. either. But what did we know? We we knew that the safest place for our patients was in those very places of the operating room and in the physician's offices. Right. Because a lack of care, and if they keep putting it off and putting it off, the far worse outcomes mm-hmm. resulted. And we know that now as we study it and look back at it, that shutting those services down did not help our population to become healthier. In fact, they were much more sicker. So this is what we find each and every day as we battle this is that, you know, we have to weigh both sides. Mm -hmm. And so we know that we are facing the most tumultuous times in healthcare right now. Right. Uh, And it's concerning because we have an exodus, both of retirees uh, and even among my own peers of CEOs who are in their early 60s, 61, 62, who one called me last night, I'm out, I'm done, not doing this anymore. And it's every day a battle. Yeah. And so the challenge is real. And the landscape is not looking very good for healthcare. Right. Now, what's the long term? The long term is if the hospital cannot take care of patients, the hospital loses their patient foothold, the hospital closes, there goes the community. Right. These are hospitals and rural communities who are the the the, the primary, maybe the number two uh, leading employer in that jurisdiction. And when that hospital closes or health system does, so goes their town. Mm-hmm. And this is devastating. Now, I'm not a type of guy that believes in conspiracies or the sky is falling, but we have to be realist right. in the understanding that, you know what, this is going to have a devastating impact. Even, mm-hmm. even, and, and this is what the, this is what the other side is arguing to. Well, it's just a small population. Really? 10% of my staff is 50 people. Right. 50 people will close offices immediately. Right. I, one of my clinics has three people in it, mm-hmm. servicing a community that's seen 15 to 20 patients a day right. who need health care, who have no transportation to get to the hospital and have to get it in their community. Right. We have another clinic of two people. Again, when you tell me 50, we're not a big system that has 15,000 people. Right. And so 50 is a drop in the bucket. 10% of my bottom line total number of FTEs is significant to closing programs. Right. And that's what's concerning. Right. Because, you know, like you said, the the end possibility is that hospitals close due to lack of staffing and inability to take care of patients. Um, and, you know, sadly, there are rural hospitals who that's going to happen sooner than later for them. You know, we're, we're fortunate in Hillsdale that we are in a really strong financial position, um, but not all rural hospitals are like that. And, um, you know, I don't want to make any predictions of horrible things, but oh, it's going to be interesting to see 
how many rural hospitals that were already on the brink, this ends up being the straw that broke the camel's back, you know? I mean, I, I don't know how many that's going to be, how widespread that is. I hope that I'm wrong. I, hope, I really I do. I pray that you're wrong, but, re- but reality sets in, Rachel, and the reality right. of this is that here's what's going to happen. Those staff members are going to depart from that hospital. They're overwhelmed. They're overworked. They're going to say, we're going to go to a hospital with bigger staff, you know, mm-hmm. lower patient loads. And that community then has to hire what are called travelers. A traveler is in any profession. It can be any profession. We've mm-hmm. had traveling nurses. We've had traveling ex. You have to hire travelers. Now, a traveler in in RN traveler would cost me about $78 an hour about a year and a half ago. Compared to what is our our employed nurse would typically make. We're talking about an RN, 30, right? 32 $35 an hour. So you're already pay, paying a so you're pretty paying, big and, premium and we always to get to this temporary go, person. Ugh, that's a killer because you're paying double. Right. But you have to fill shifts. Right. And you have to ensure you have the quality of care for patients and to also have the support the staff needs. Now, shall one guess how much the cost per hour now in today's market, COVID-19, market is for an RN. Is it 130 for a traveler? 225 right now. Shut your mouth. Nah, I kid you not. I wish I could. Since I, the last time I we heard, are, I thought it was 130. Absolutely not. 225 right now is what many- You'll take that to the bank. I'll take it to the bank. Well, they'll take it to the bank. <laughs> yeah. But absolutely. Right. We're paying anywhere they'll from- They'll take it one, from our bank. They are paying anywhere from 185 to 225. Depends Good on the specialty. Lord. And they all have different specialty right. rates. So if you're going to see Well, and what does that do as, to the RN working so right now, next to now them? Now, just imagine employed. this. So you're making- Our nurses have been promised themselves. So that's what the company charges you. Right. The nurse will make $100, $110 an hour next to a nurse who's making 30 35. Doing the same work. Doing the same work. And at times, there's significant conflict with that, right? Right. But it's hard. here's who's getting rich. It's it's the companies that know that there is a labor a shortage. Mm-hmm. It's and supply and demand. It is supply and, and demand. We've talked before about the dangers of trying to apply free market economics to healthcare, to healthcare. but that's the world we live it is. in. So. It is. And so the challenges are for those rural hospitals that you just spoke about. Uh, if they're paying, let's just say, an average of 170 Per nurse, right? If they have a CCU, they're going to pay two twenty five. If they have a med surge, probably paying one seventy, one eighty an hour. All right, let's just take it. Let's say it's one fifty an hour. Let's just be realist. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, you do that times two thousand eighty hours per person. It's three hundred thousand dollars a year. Yep. Okay. Now, if you have ten openings, it's three million dollars a year. Yep. So ten openings in a small hospital, not uncommon. Usually there's twenty. Mm-hmm. So now you're at six million dollars to replace them per year. When you talk about operating on a zero margin yeah, or a, a, a razor thin, it, you're game over. Right. You're cutting into your cash on hand. You're done in a year. Right. And maybe there's some sinister, I don't know, maybe there's some sinister plan out there to end all rural health care. There could be. I don't know. I think we just have the perfect storm. Yeah. You know, it's just all these things are happening at once. It's been, you know, already 18 months into a pandemic that this is happening. So, you know, there sometimes I go home at night and I just wonder, I'm like, how much longer can all of us sustain this pace? Absolutely. You know, and and, and I'm not just talking about our, our patient care staff. I'm talking about everybody. Everybody. I mean, our staff are working Non-stop. crazy hours and really just trying to keep everything moving forward. And we are doing more than just surviving, oh, we're um, which is important. But to be able to do that, it takes a lot from our staff. And, um, sure does. you know, I think in healthcare, to your point, it's going to look very different because mm-hmm. the people who are still here 
are going to be more stressed because the staffing is going to be more of a challenge. You're going to have travelers working next to them. You know, you have all these difficulties. And, um, you know, from from your perspective with the kind of approach that you take to healthcare, we're looking at if we lose a devastating number of staff members, we're looking at, okay, we're not closing the hospital, no. but we're limiting the services yeah. we can provide. And that is, you know, gut-wrenching in a way because one of the things we pride ourselves on is having a comprehensive continuum of care right here where families need it. You know, Rachel, you know, when I took over a year and six months ago, it all blurs together now, um, that I had a growth strategy that I put on the table. Mm -hmm. And that growth strategy is 100% dependent upon having staff. Right. Having the available bodies to work the new services that we're talking about from cancer services to dialysis. No robots are taking care of those patients. Right. This is human uh, bodies that mm-hmm. have to come in. And so the devastation to a plan like ours, I go home and that's what I worry the most about. Like, wow, yeah, we can sustain what we're doing, but we're not growing and and we're not developing new markets. So we're not because there's nobody that wants to work in those new markets. Right. And that's becoming a significant challenge for us. Now, mm-hmm. those that are listening to this will say it's not unique to healthcare. Because even in my own family who run businesses, they're facing the same challenges, right? Mm -hmm. Workforce shortages are huge. They're huge. And and it's real. We see it here. Uh, We have, uh, on average, an open, you know, 8 to 10% of our total number of staff Mm -hmm. uh, are are in open positions. That's concerning. Right. Because that creates burnout, Mm -hmm. creates people working extra shifts, Mm -hmm. overtime, all of those things. And, And after a while, it doesn't matter how much you pay staff. Right. It just... They cannot get their valuable time back. Right. So there has to be a balance. And so, you know, what we're submitting is that we believe in vaccines working and such executive actions that both our governor and the president of the United States took, how that has impacted negatively uh, in our rural communities and those actions, sole actions, can have so much devastation on our rural communities it it creates a very sickening feeling in my stomach, Rachel, when I consider that the, the decisions that they're making individually, remember, and many times right. without even the legislative bodies weighing in, mm-hmm, those mm-hmm. decisions, not, you know, I would question who they're surrounding themselves with, uh, for example, in our state where we shut down elective surgeries. Right. But those single-handed decisions have consequences that are, in fact, between life and death. Right. So one other thing that I want to touch on before we wrap up here is the um, the potential that this could be uh, overturned or somehow that this rule could be defeated. So the OSHA rule, um, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit did issue a temporary stay to the enforcement of the OSHA ETS, which mandates vaccines, like we said before, employers with 100 or more employees. That does not apply to healthcare workers. And that's so confusing because, you know, when you read a headline that says federal court stalls vaccine mandate, oh, you're thinking, oh, OK, so I don't have to get it yet. And then our staff are getting an email from you that says, OK, we're moving forward with our process. And they're oh, like, yeah. wait, what? I thought the court said we don't have to do it. It's it's incredibly confusing. Hot chair, is this all on you? Right. And then right. you go, no, it's not an individual decision that we're making. Right. And then we have staff um, or people in our community saying things like Hillsdale Hospital is choosing to mandate the COVID-19 vaccination. Yeah. Now, this is kind of semantics, but the reality is we're not 
choosing to mandate it. We are choosing to comply with the mandate that the federal government has given us. The federal government is mandating the vaccination. We're choosing to comply because if we don't, we know that our community will not have the health care that it needs. So it's it's a, um, you know. It's a decision we have to make. It's the lesser of two evils, uh, which unfortunately there have been a lot of those dichotomies in the pandemic yeah. um, to say, you know, do we say, no, we're not going to comply with this and lose 70 percent of our funding? Or do we say our patients and our community deserve to have as much health care available as we can possibly give them at a high quality that we are going to do what we have to do? Yeah, Rachel, absolutely. And just think about this. You just talked about the federal uh, action where they put a stay on it. Mm-hmm. So imagine this. Now, all the competing industries that I just spoke about earlier, they have zero rules for right. COVID-19. Right. Zero. This ruling stands. Zero. So yeah. now, can you imagine the challenges of healthcare agencies? Oh, my goodness. This I am not a guy who believes in doomsday predictions and all this. I will tell you, single-handedly, this decision will have traumatic impact in our communities and most devastating to our rural communities, where those communities need their local hospital because it generates so much of their local economy. When you go to larger jurisdictions, bigger towns, they have two or three hospital systems, five major plants for automobile factories and and malls and shops. Okay, that is great. When you come to rural America, it's us. Right. Usually hospitals, the school system, and if there's a community college in there, right. that gets thrown <laughs> in there as well. Even manufacturing doesn't rise typically to the occasion because they're all little smaller manufacturing shops. So- I'm here to tell you that on the course that we're headed with the great resignation, with nurses now feeling like they've gone from hero to zero, uh, there will be a a mass out-migration of these staff, not only in nursing, environmental services. Think about dietary services. Think about all the people that clean the facility. These are folks that can now go to other places in the community who have no restrictions. Right. And yet healthcare, because... We don't follow the OSHA requirement because it's superseded by CMS. Mm-hmm. Now we're in the most difficult situation. Right. And we also can't, you know, wait and hope that a lawsuit filed against the oh. CMS rule is going to lead to a stay just the way that the OSHA one did because the the rules are similar but the agencies and how they derive their authority is very different. So the purpose of OSHA is to make sure that workplaces are safe and healthy for people. CMS is the insurance company for 70% of our patients. So for us, it's very clear that CMS has the authority to create conditions of participation is what they're called to create the COP. And if we don't abide by the conditions of participation, they're not going to say, well, we're go home. Your hospital shut down. They're going to say, well, we're not paying you for that. Absolutely. We're not going to pay you for that care that you're providing. And that is what happens. So in a way, it's um, it's more of a uh, a carrot than a stick Mm -hmm. from CMS, but it might as well be a stick with the effect that it has. Might as well be a stick because they're not giving us any more money. Right. It's the same amount that we've been collecting from these agencies. 
but we have to participate. And Rachel, this is nothing new. Uh, CMS puts out, you know, these these requirements right. every year. This is just another one. So, you know, for the courts to say that somehow what, what CMS has done is unlawful, I think that's going to be a really, I think it's going to be an uphill battle. And I don't think that it's going to go the way no. that some people want it to. It will not, sadly. But Rachel, the good news is our healthcare heroes are doing a remarkable job across America, not just here at Hillsville Hospital, supporting our patients and their families and walking them through some of the most difficult times, including death. Uh, it, it, I, I'm, it's a remarkable story when I hear nurses talk about how they're ministering to families uh, in their last days and hours. It's, mm-hmm. It touches my heart. It touches my bereaved heart. And so the good news is that our healthcare heroes have stepped up to the challenge. Yes. They're across the spectrum, across the country. You know, our hospitals who are right now, even in our own region, you can't place a place a patient if you try to. Right. Because they're they're full. Um, healthcare heroes are stepping up still, even in the midst of all of this. Yes. They realize about their responsibility. So I say hats off to our healthcare heroes in all different capacities, working from the front at screening patients to working in the laboratory, which you never see people because they're in the back processing, uh, to the x-ray technicians, to the nurses, to the respiratory therapists. They got hit the hardest during this disease. Uh, mm-hmm. To the folks preparing the food for the patients that are staying in the hospital for days and days. Yes. Uh, to the folks that are coming in and the ministers and the clergy who are ministering to our patients. Everybody plays mm-hmm. such a unique and vital role. They are the true heroes in healthcare. It's not you and I on a podcast. It's it's not administration. Right. It's them, the frontline staff, working very hard. And for that, we are blessed beyond measure to have such a team as we do in the United States of America in healthcare. Thank you for joining us for today's mini-sode. Next week, we'll be speaking with someone who has experience growing rural economies, which in turn supports rural health care. If you have a topic or issue you want us to cover on a future mini-sode, shoot us an email at marketing at hillsdalehospital.com. You can also find Hillsdale Hospital on Facebook and Instagram. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen to. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. You can also find us now on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rule Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rule Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by JJ Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.